This podcast features explicit language and spoilers. Welcome to Better Late Than Never, a movie podcast where I get a friend to watch a blockbuster, cult favorite, or otherwise culturally significant film that they've never seen before. After we watch the movie, my guest will decide if it was better late, that they've been missing out by not having seen the film, or never, the movie didn't live up to the hype for them. My name is Dave, and I'm your host. Today, I'm joined by usual suspect, Josh, and we are discussing a movie that he's never seen before. Dune from 1984. Hi, Josh. Hey, fam. Welcome back. Good to be back on this spectacular podcast. And it's good to have you. I just want to toss out real quick as we get started why I picked this movie for us. This film isn't necessarily a blockbuster or a cult favorite or even necessarily that culturally significant. What it is, is a famous flop, and it's definitely one of those famously bad movies, or at least people consider it to be one of those really, truly, spectacularly awful films. I don't want this program to just be a bad movie podcast. There are a lot of those already. But that being said, I think this is one worth talking about. Okay, well, my take on it, my take is that this movie was this is based on the novel yep that had a fairly rabid fan base it is an an adaptation of an incredibly popular and influential novel called dune by frank herbert that came out in the 60s and you have just recently finished reading it yes and you liked i i really i'm i would consider myself one of the dune fan base now yes i'm gonna try to read the next two yeah, I also have read the book Dune. I am a huge fan. I loved the book. Uh, the movie, not so much, not to give it away. But when you say it's not iconic, is it not, isn't isn't it iconic in the sense that it is a property that that studios must have been salivating over how to cash in on that audience? So the fact that it is a an unsuccessful movie and was a flop makes it iconic. We're not watching this to just shit on it because it's, uh, and it, it, I don't know if it's going to be a bad movie. I feel like this might be something that I enjoy based on the book. Entirely possible. And yes, you are correct. Part of the reason why I think this qualifies property is partly because of the book and the reputation of it, not just as a film, but as a book and a movie and just a property in general. So the book's reputation is coming into play here a little bit. I mean, I'm sure there's there's it's there's got to be other. Uh, it's like Avatar: The Last Airbender, 
where not to tie it back into the last appearance I made on the podcast, but that was a property that when they made the M. Night Shyamalan movie, the studio must have been very excited to cash in on that audience. And then they ended up with something that fans fans would not get behind. Right. And that movie is significant because it's not just a bad movie. It is an adaptation of another property that's very popular in its own right. So there's kind of a you know, uh, a large cultural impact coming out from another direction that influences how important the movie is. But I, I, I would like to say adapting a, a novel or a book or a story or a property to a movie can be very hit or miss. I hated uh, the, la- the Hitchhiker's movie, the Hitchhiker's Guide movie that came out uh, in 2004. The five. one with most stuff? Yeah, at the time, being as someone who had just recently read the books, I walked out of it with a really bad taste in my mouth. Now, a decade later, I've gone back and rewatched it, and now I have a favorable opinion of it. But as of someone who loved the book and who was looking for the movie to be everything I loved about the book, I was disgusted. I mm. was, uh, I was. In fact, the the people I went with were like, "Oh, that was pretty good, huh?" It was like very similar. I was like, "No, that was garbage. What is wrong with you?" So, hmm. people who have a very I mean, that's the, the the dicey nature of adapting something that, you know, has been written is uh, you you could not get it right to the fans. And that's the scary thing. Yeah, totally. Well, we'll find out just how right they got it. Uh, let's talk a little bit about where you are prior to seeing this. So as we just said, you've just finished reading the book. Today. Yeah. <laughs> not bad. Apart from what I have had to say about this movie over the years, and I think it's pretty clear that my feelings about the film are negative. Have you heard anything about this film? Are you coming in with any preconceptions? The strongest recollection I have of this movie is my dad talking to me about it as a kid and explaining to me that it was a a bad movie or that was a famously bad movie. Yes. Uh, In getting ready to do this podcast, I have had people try to talk to me about it. Uh, Obviously I've made the mistake of, explaining to people i was reading the book and why and then they sort of immediately start trying to spout spoilers at me that i have to like i mean i basically start every conversation by saying please don't tell me anything about it and for some reason people in their heads go okay but i do want to tell you this even though it is a spoiler but you should it's like no when i say i don't want to know anything about it i don't want to know anything about it so i know that there is so i'm pretty i'm going into this pretty blind other than knowing it's directed by david lynch and uh who one of the actors is who's the actor who you know unfortunately and this is very disappointing because this is something i would have loved to have found out in real time i found out that sting is in this movie ah that is a shame because a surprise sting appearance is uh definitely worthwhile i'm sorry that got spoiled for you was he an actor is that not really he just was chosen to uh to appear in the film so just kind of like how bowie is randomly in that uh prestige oh bowie is in the prestige and he's all well he's also in a scorsese film from the 80s where he plays pontius Pilate, the last days of christ it's it's last temptation last temptation yes yeah he's also in zoolander and labyrinth i don't know why i think david bowie had no acting career well sting's been in other stuff he was in uh, Lockstock and zoolander Sting's in Zoolander? I'm almost positive Sting is in Zoolander or Zoolander 2. I don't remember. I haven't seen Zoolander 2. Well, anyway. Wait, what does he do in Lockstock? He's the father of the main character. Interesting. His bar is uh, like in jeopardy because they're out of money. Okay. Anyway, 
So that's I I thought Dennis Hopper was in it. Someone told me that's not true. No, Dennis Hopper's not in it. Then I guess I just thought that was because of Waterworld cuz he is in Maybe. A, uh, Yeah, we're we're doing a desert world movie, not a water world movie. The opposite problem. Right. Do you know any other actors or actresses who might be in this film? I know, but I I mean no, I don't for sure. Hmm. Okay. Um you mentioned it is directed by David Lynch. Uh do you have any feelings about him going into the film? I like his work. I am less familiar with anything like as a lot of the David Lynch movies I've seen have been psychological thrillers. What have you seen? Uh, Zodiac. That's David Fincher. Uh, this uh, is David Lynch. Oh, oh, oh boy. Okay. Then I have seen um, Existence because That's David Cronenberg. Okay. Uh david lynch was on the tv show louie right for a few episodes yes okay so that that's what i know him from i guess okay do you want me to toss out a few of his movies to see if you've seen them i haven't seen blue velvet okay uh he also is responsible for the tv show twin peaks have you seen any of that no i started watching twin peaks i did not make it very far you didn't like it no it wasn't i didn't like it 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 just just wasn't for you. I wasn't. It wasn't the thing I wanted to binge yeah, at that moment. Yeah, yeah. Okay. A few, a few other movies by David Lynch, just to throw them out there. Eraserhead. Haven't seen it. Elephant Man. Haven't seen it. You already mentioned Blue Velvet. Um, Lost Highway. Haven't seen it. Mulholland Drive. Haven't seen it. All right. He's got a couple others, but the I think- The Fly. <laughs> Again, David Cronenberg. Ooh. Yeah. So what David Lynch movies? I have not seen one before. My goodness, this might be your first David Lynch experience. That, that, I consider myself like a, a movie. You've never seen anything by David Lynch. Well, I don't know. I'm not looking at his IMDb page, but I haven't seen any of the movies that you just listed. My goodness. Uh, Inland Empire, I think, was a recent one he made. No. I haven't seen that one. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Okay, okay, okay. Eastern Promises. Again. Cronenberg. No. Yeah. Then... What the fuck? Do you know David Lynch by reputation? I mean, I know that he is a considered a pretty significant film director. But you don't know anything about his style or his predilections or anything I like that? I just know that Blue Velvet was sort of this iconically uh, dark suburbia movie that was the table setter for a lot of other movies like that that came out in the 90s so is this is also this, has uh, dennis hopper yeah as this sort of uh gas huffing psycho serial killer or something like that something like that so i i thought i had at least had a passing familiarity uh with his work uh, okay wait he because it was david fincher that directed alien 3 yes who directed alien 2 james cameron so David Lynch doesn't have any hands on the alien properties. No. Although I would pay good money to see that. So apparently, yeah, I really uh, thought that I had sort of a broad movie palette. But I guess when it comes to movies directed by David's, I only know Fincher very well. And Cronenberg passingly and David Lynch not at all. Interesting. So this is actually going to be your first David Lynch experience. Um, You know... I don't think this film is the most representative of his uh, talent, but at the same time, I guess we'll get more into it when we come back after watching it, but David Lynch is a very singular director. 
And I guess the fact that this is adapting something that he didn't come up with himself makes it uh, a little less. Also, he's not usually someone who makes like a big budget blockbuster. So this isn't really uh, a perfect example of what David Lynch is like, but there's definitely his fingerprints are all over. Like it's clearly a David Lynch movie. This is a movie that to me feels like it should be directed by Terry Gilliam. Or, oh, that would have been great. You know, Spielberg. Who Who is your dream director? You having just finished reading Dune, who would you have gotten if you could get anyone? Well, Gilliam immediately comes to mind. Fantastic choice. Especially in the 80s. Yeah. I mean, in terms of budget, he probably would have just wrecked whatever, whatever budget they had. There is that, yeah. Um, in terms of a modern adaptation or director, I would probably throw my money behind Spike Jones. Interesting choice. Spike Jones has had a his career's kind of gotten cast out of favor with Hollywood after where the wild things are. Hmm. Well, all right, oh, so we wait, I'm gonna throw one more out there. Go ahead. JJ Abrams. Honestly, I mean, look, I know it's probably popular to shit all over JJ Abrams, but I just don't feel the same way. Like I know his movies have a certain like slick competence to them that people might find to be not enough but i don't know i i do like i i will take slick competence compared to the uh overreaching failures of some other movies i would say my my critique of jj abrams is that he he plays it safe so he's a very competent director but his movies always feel very safe and like you said clean and i it's you wish that someone who was given the creative freedom and the amount of interesting franchises to work on that he has been able to work on he would re, he would do something bold or something you know say what you want about Terry Gilliam he goes for it sure and um it's interesting that you say that about this movie because we'll talk more about this in part 2 but there is one there's something about this uh particular property that i think lends itself to someone who's gonna try and take creative risks like this just feels like a universe where people should really go for it and do something weird and interesting and singular as opposed to like what we said about jj abrams something that's like conservative but competent that being said this is also a property where those singular artistic talents maybe have had a tendency to overreach themselves but we'll see what you think and what we come up with in part two when we will come back to this, okay? I'm not prepared for what this is going to be visually in any capacity because it is it. I mean, I I think I maybe said this, uh, texted you this when I was reading it. I, I could see this being a near impossible mo- uh, movie. I don't know how you make this movie. Hmm. I don't know how make you. I don't know how you make this movie interesting. You you have to really gut the novel and extricate just the story elements and the character elements because i don't think just doing a chapter for by chapter script based on this movie is is, would be a success it's all over the place there's times where you're getting i mean i think the first seven chapters it's a different character's first person perspective every chapter so you get uh lady jessica at the top of the book you get paul you get duke leto you get tufir hawat you get Doctor Yu, uh, and I and that was always easy to read because I kept jumping in between character mindsets, and that was helping establish the world. You can't make a movie that way. No. Well, they're gonna try. 
Before we start watching, do you have any predictions? What do you think you're going to see? Well, I, having read the book, I, I mean, I, I assume I'm going to see uh, worms. I assume there's going to be worms. Yeah. Uh, I'm but assuming... going beyond just like you expect to see the things you read about in the book, I mean, do you expect to see a certain amount of fidelity to the book? Or do you expect certain characters to be different? Like, Or do you expect certain actors or actresses? Like, Don't just, you know go off of what the book tells you but anything beyond that i expect this to i expect this to be well i think so connecting that to what i just said i expect this to not be the book in terms of the way the story is told okay and i have a feeling it's gonna be one of those situations where characters are combined or cut and new characters are added i don't expect it to be faithful uh based on the the negative energy around it i expect it's going to be an unfaithful adaption and I have a feeling that due to budget, probably uh, huge parts of the book are going to be condensed. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I expect there to be like in the in in scenes where there could be thousands of people, there just are hundreds or uh, things like that. Uh, I'm expecting some Harryhausen style uh, special effects, uh, a lot of green screen and a lot of blue screen, and I I'm also expecting. Well, I guess I yeah, I guess that's about it. In terms of actors, I don't know from the eighties who to who to throw at this. Uh I could just throw actors I knew who were working in the eighties, but I don't I'm so lost as to like somehow this movie has eluded my it's been in my blinders. I will say what I do know my understanding of David Lynch movies is they're not linear always. Not always. And that they can be like Mulholland Drive is really you you uh, you have to sit down and be ready to pick up the pieces and interpret it your own way yeah in a funny way and you you might be surprised by this after you watch the movie but in a funny way dune is david lynch at his most conventional oh i think it has to be i'm sure he was forced to be i mean by a studio right, that's a big tentpole uh popular film I'm, I'm expecting giant battles i'm expecting big set pieces i'm expecting uh, I'm expecting like doors that slide open, like Star uh, Star Trek and you know Star Wars. <laughs> okay. I'm expecting beeps and boops and like futuristic looking pads. Uh, I'm expecting like an excessive amount of time spent on, you know, seeing vehicles ride across the sand or things like that. And I'm expecting giant worms to destroy spice collectors. Okay. I'm also just expecting a significantly reduced amount of information about the politics of it all, which is a huge part of the book. Yeah, we may touch on that a little bit, but I don't want this uh, podcast to just be a list of ways in which the movie follows the book or fails to follow the book. Because that will get boring pretty fast, but we we will mention it where it's worth mentioning. But And to be fair, the chessboard you've set up now is that as someone who's just immediately read the source property, I'm I'm going to be have that heavily weighing on my view of the movie. And that'll be fine. All right. Well, unless you have any last thoughts, do you want to watch this movie? I'm really excited to to finally watch Dune and I and going into it I'm trying to keep as open a mind as possible. Uh listeners cool. of the podcast who heard my Avatar take that I went into with a pretty significant bent as to how I thought I was going to perceive this movie. This it is Saturday. I'm with my good friend Dave. I'm going to watch a movie I've never seen before that I know a little bit more about than I normally would having read the book. 
And as for me, this will be my first time rewatching it after watching it when I was a young man. I've made my feelings about this movie pretty clear, I think. But in case I haven't been clear, I think this movie sucks. But we're going to find out if uh, it's in for a critical reevaluation. How much time? A decade? Has it been more than 10 years? I watched it pretty soon after I finished reading the book, so I'm going to say <laughs> about 20 years. So was that 20 years? Yeah. Now, can I just ask, too, were you, like, excited for the movie? Were you given any kind of warning from your... I was very excited for the movie. I came in with no preconceptions. Okay. Well, that's going to be interesting, then. Yeah, we'll see if I like it. So let's dune it. Uh... A beginning is a very delicate time. Know then that it is the year 10,191. In this time, the most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange. The spice extends life. The spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe. The planet is Arrakis, also known as Dune. You are about to enter a world where the unexpected... Many dangers exist on Arrakis. The unknown and incredible secret has been kept on this planet. And the unbelievable meets. I see two great houses. Where kingdoms are built on Earth that moves. We have worm sign the likes of which even God has never seen. And skies are filled with fire. The prophecy which will cleanse the universe and bring us out of darkness. Where a young warrior Why? is called upon to free his people. A world that holds creation's greatest treasure. He who controls the spice controls the universe. And greatest terrors. A world where the mighty... This is genocide. The deliberate and systematic destruction of all life on Arrakis. The mad. <laughs> I will kill him! I will love you forever. And the magical... Father, the sleeper has awakened! ...will have their final battle. show the slightest pity or mercy emperor we come for you a spectacular journey through the wonders of space and the mysteries of time from the boundaries of the incredible to the borders of the impossible now Dino De Laurentiis presents Dune, a world beyond your experience, beyond your imagination. And we're back. I, yeah. I, I feel, um, I feel upset. 
Yeah. Okay, well, Josh, I'm going to let you finish. I will let you speak. And I don't know, I guess maybe this is something that I should be saving for the end like I normally do, but this is a case where I don't think I can hold it in. I just have to go. So I will give you a chance to respond to this movie, especially because that's kind of the point, but I just need to say, all right, let me start by saying this movie and part of the reason why I chose it, this is the movie that taught me as a kid that movies could be bad. Uh huh. You know what I mean? Like, you know, there's that part of your life as a child where you think because I'm watching a movie, that means I'm having fun. Yeah. This is the first movie I watched when I was younger where I realized oh, movies can be bad. Like, I can watch a movie and actually feel like I'm not having a good time. And as the run-up to watching it again started uh, happening, I thought, you know, maybe I was being unfair back then. You know, maybe I was just being too precious about the source material. Maybe I just didn't get David Lynch's vision. Maybe it's not as bad as I thought. No. This movie is terrible. I I know I picked this, but there is a part of me that is disgusted with myself for having sat through it a second time, and it is unequivocally the worst movie I have ever seen. I I have to put it in the easily top five worst movies I've ever seen. I would venture to say that has ever been made. I could not agree more. I despise this film it just <laughs> it's the type of thing that i don't understand why david Cl- david lynch i don't understand why david lynch has a career if this is the first movie he made or the first studio movie he made how is he still making movies at all why did anyone give him a second chance all right well clearly we have some opinions and we'll explore them but Let's let's start doing it in the fashion that we've set up as our structure. So I was I was yeah. cautiously optimistic going into this because of the strength of the novel. And oh, boy. Yeah. Well, I warned you. All right. Let's uh, let's launch into our discussion points. So number one background on this film. As we know, it's based on the 1965 book of the same name by Frank Herbert which you just read. Yes. It was first optioned as a movie in 1971, but that first shot died in development. Okay. Then in 1973, uh, it was picked up by Alejandro Jodorowsky. Yes. And yes. So I've heard tell of this. Right. So he uh, very famously tried to adapt this movie and failed. And the story of that attempt to make this was, then uh, covered by the documentary Yudorowsky's Dune, which came out, I think, in uh, 2013. Okay. I haven't seen that documentary. It looks very interesting. I hope to catch it one day. But um, apparently his vision for this was very interesting, and it's been referred to as the most influential film never made. What is his claim to fame? What other films did he direct? Oh, um, nothing that I'm personally familiar with. I've seen a little bit of discussion of his other work online and it's included clips of his other films it all looks very arty and strange but interesting at least visually speaking okay uh clearly a man of great creativity and from i've seen trailers for yudorowsky's dune which included some of his design ideas that looked fascinating and these are things that later got picked up by other directors and apparently greatly influenced some later sci-fi work 
Uh, Yudorowsky's plan included using Pink Floyd to score the movie. Okay. And I believe you said that you were listening to Pink Floyd while reading the book. Yes, uh, huge sections of it. I drifted between Pink Floyd albums and Radiohead. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, He hired Dan O'Bannon for the visual effects. Uh, He, at the very least, was someone who worked on a bunch of influential other films like Alien. And he got H.R. Geiger to work on some of the art design. He was going to cast Salvador Dali as the Emperor, Orson Welles as Baron Harkonnen, Mick Jagger as Fade Rautha, and uh, a few others like Udo Kier and David Carradine. So how did so, so is Sting a holdover from that? Like, is that we got to get a musician to play Fade Rautha? <laughs> Look, we'll make this movie on one condition. A musician plays this guy. We yeah. need to connect to the youth. Uh, so you say there's a trailer for it. How far along did he get in the making of this movie? Um, I don't think he got very far because part of the reason why it died was he had trouble securing funding. So I think it was all just sort of like in the design stage. Okay. So I, underst- but I haven't seen it, so I could be wrong. I understand why. Okay. I understand that this, this would be the type of. Uh, this is the type of treatment that would circle around studios and uh, especially in the 70s must have just they must have looked at the price tag and thought there's no way probably too much money yeah so in 1976 Dino De Laurentiis uh, the super producer got his hands on it originally hired Ridley Scott to direct the film and Ridley Scott worked on it for a little while before dropping out and uh, then they handed it off to find a new director that new director was David Lynch One fun fact about David Lynch taking this job is that in order to make Dune, he turns down an offer to direct a different science fiction film, Return of the Jedi. Now, having seen Dune, Josh, how do you think Return of the Jedi would have gone if David Lynch had made that movie? Oh, thank God he did not get anywhere near it. Right? Thank we would be living in a God. different world. Oh, it would be a bad. That would be the darkest timeline. That would be that would be terrifying. A terrifying existence. A hundred Trumps as president, rather than have David Lynch get his hands on Return of the Jedi. My goodness. I don't know about that, but uh, it does seem like yeah. If that's if we are yeah, that's. Uh, I'm just using hyperbole to drive home a point, which is that it would have been awful. I I I just can't fathom. This is how, but this is says a few things about studios. So this seems like. Uh, an example of when a studio says, oh, this person directed a very successful lower budget movie. So let's give them let's give them a giant epic. And uh, and then they fail with it. But then they're allowed to have a career. I feel this way about. Uh, well, I, I guess. Are we into director? Or are we still in. Background? Yeah, let's talk about the director. So this. Is, how do you feel about the director? <clears throat> I guess. it. Uh, all right. So the directing. Was awful. Yep uh garbage yep. the entire way through mm-hmm. every choice seemed wrong, wrong and inclined to either alienate the viewer or it, it it i don't know what i just watched the only time i ever feel this way is Zack snyder movies and so i think i finally realized where Zack snyder got his influence oh come on man because it's just I don't agree with that. Boring and in-your-face boring and awful. I would say the one time I felt like David Lynch was putting a positive stamp on this movie 
were the Baron Harkonnen scenes. Interesting. Which were about, they weren't at all what I had envisioned reading the book, but they had the right tone of evil and nastiness, and uh, you really, you really hated the Harkonnen Baron in a way that, I, that is not how I imagined it depicted reading the book. But I had the same visceral, I think the correct visceral response to it. Those scenes are memorable. I will give you that. They are among the scenes that I remembered most clearly from my earlier youthful watch. But I don't care for them. No, I, they're not pleasant. They're not. There's. It's, it's just going back to Seven. It's that it's like the, I was impressed by the aud- audaciousness of the grossness and the gutterness of it. It is so disgusting and actually so that is something that i think we should talk about in terms of his directing choices something that stands out about this movie from top to bottom it is uniformly so ugly the sets the the character design the the way the the shots are set up like it's all just so ugly to look at and two-dimensional in a in a strange in a strange way everything feels like it is you're looking at a photograph of something everything feels really rigid and you don't feel like you're in anywhere and i will say one 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 thing that got under my skin was that that the same vision and focus and attention that is paid to these scenes with these characters that you are just consistently reviled by is not paid in any way to the, the Fremen or oh, the story, or the, the Fremen or culture, Paul or the battles, or, or all the ninety yep. percent of it's like it's like ninety percent of this feels phoned in, and the ten percent of it that feels like he actually gave a shit is not the not at all where he the energy should be focused. Right. I mean, like I said, so, so like the character design is ugly, and that goes both for like the design of alien characters, like the mutated spacer, uh, the pilot to the way character uh, costuming and makeup is designed, like the design of the Bane Gesserit uniform. And I know in the movie they pronounce it Bene Gesserit, but I'm going with Bane Gesserit because I don't respect this movie at all. Well, um, fair enough, because there's no reason to. Yeah, just the, the, the way that order was portrayed and the still suits look ugly. It's Oh, I actually thought the still suits were sexier than I imagined they ever could be in the book. Fair enough. And to I me, they down. just look like gray nothing. Okay, here's what really blew me away about this travesty of, a, of this train wreck of a movie. Okay. And, and this is, I had to do this for myself. Okay, special effects wise, this is laughably sad. Yeah. It is awful. It, every effect looks just I mean, this and it's it's not like it's just the '80s, okay? Because this is the thing. No, this came out at the same time as Return of the Jedi. Compare Th- these two films. This came out at a time the the creature effects are bad, the costumes are bad. Uh, maybe the gross again, just going back to the Harkonnens, the gross disease bubble makeup on the Baron is good, okay? Again, but to the end of portraying something that's so repulsive. Yes, to that's look not at. the thing that should be good. Okay, but here's what really struck me. Here are here's a list I wrote during the movie because of how how bored I was because there are in, there are like 10 minute sequences where you're just watching a ship landing or arriving. Right, go ahead. Okay, these are other movies that came to mind that to me illustrate it's a, it's a travesty why the art direction and effects are so bad. <clears throat> Critters, 
Little Shop of Horrors, Star Wars, Tremors, Original Godzilla, 70s King Kong, The Thing, Willow, Total Recall, Terminator, Jaws, Dark Crystal, Gremlins, The Wall, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and The NeverEnding Story, and both Ghostbusters movies all came out around this time and all had very good passable effects that you can still look back on and and say oh and they hold up yeah it's like hey your novel your source material is from the 60s you can make your movie with modern technology i mean i you know normally i hesitate to shit on a movie too much and especially to shit on a director too much for the quality of special effects and the degree to which a special effect impacts your overall opinion of a movie but in this case it detracts so much from your ability to enjoy the film that you have to knock it the last time we sat down i went on a rant about practical effects and my appreciation for them this movie is the reason why james cameron was right to be concerned about (laughs) avatar i did not realize that it could be this bad it can be this bad in a in a movie that should be good is what i is also i'd like to say because i i mean there are bad movies with bad effects because the budget's just not there right but this is a movie that was obviously supported they spent lots of money on something mm-hmm. and yet the end result is ne- nearly unwatchable yeah we're gonna i don't want to spend too much time just in this section because i think we're going to talk a lot about the direction sure to when we get into like the plot of the movie but one other thing that i do want to touch on is a terrible mistake in this film or in the choices they make. The film way over relies on voiceover. From the begin, the very beginning of the movie is not voiceover, but it's all exposition. So one, there's tons of voiceover that is explaining the plot kind of as it's happening, and it's dull and uninteresting, and it's used constantly instead of like showing us interesting action. And two. They made the artistic choice to have the character's thoughts come in over voiceover, which is just awful. Like, I understand you're adapting a book, and in a book, you can read the character's thoughts, so you know what they're thinking. And in June in particular, characters have Sherlock Holmes-level deductive ability and observation ability, where they can figure things out very quickly, and it's important for you to, like know what they can see and what they're thinking but this choice to have it all just be in voiceover that you're hearing the thoughts in their head it is so clumsy and it is so ineffective it just it's terrible what's weird to me is that that's not so out of context what you're you're correct you're hitting on the fact that in dune in the book dude it's not that he it's like david lynch is trying to be overly faithful to the source material and um he could have portrayed that in a much more elegant way if he'd just thought about it well again thinking more. of a movie like uh, fear and loathing in las vegas because huge stretches of that novel are just hunter s thompson writing you know just just thoughts mm-hmm. uh that movie is filled with voiceover in a way that's not as offensive as it is done in this movie and this movie voiceover replaces like you're right as showing not telling it replaces actual scenes There's exposition that they give you that they never give you in the book because you don't need it. And also, just on a more practical level, the thought voiceover is always done in this whisper to show that it's their thoughts going through their minds. And it's actually kind of difficult to hear. Uh, Here's the thing. We'll go on and on about the directing and the art direction, but David Lynch is doubly 
this is a double homicide because he also adapted the fucking thing. He's he, he there's no one else credited on the script. It's adapted by David Lynch. So he was not only given a free directorial reign over this, but he also uh, he had free reign as a writer to put together the story exactly how he wanted it to direct it. And yet it feels like so in conflict with itself. It's uh, I I don't know. I I mean, I I will say one compliment to cut through some of the negative because it's pretty much all negative. There is a hundred page stretch of the book he accomplishes in two minutes of screen time. And it is one of the most precinct cuts and changes that he could have possibly made. And I, I for a second, I thought maybe this thing can somehow rebound. And boy, was I wrong. In the books, there are people who have abilities that to the outsider appear superhuman. So the Bane Gesserit, the Mentats, they have these intellectual and physical abilities that appear to be more than what a human is capable of but it is all a result of training and extreme discipline and force of will so uh, the bane gesserit have like sherlock holmes level observational skills and they have the ability even to like influence others and figure things out and know if people are lying but it's all because they're skilled, and if they have the ability to compel you to do something with, quote-unquote, the voice, they can speak and make you obey. It's because, you know, a skill that they've developed. In the movie, they're just psychic. They just have superpowers. And I know in the books, yes, there is a certain degree of superpowers involved, like prescience and being able to see the future, but it's much more limited. In the movie, it's all just, yeah, they're super people. Well, they try to, they try to, there's some camera editing and some close-up shots that try to suggest this, and they do this odd vocal effect whenever they use, quote, the voice. But I think that's meant to suggest that they're actually using some kind of Professor X mutant power on someone, you know? And I just, you know, that was such a cool idea to me, the fact that they have this ability that just came from training and study and effort and something particular and special about the book was lost in changing that well and that's one thing that that one flaw of this you know of this i i really don't want to call it a movie or a film because it's just garbage one thing about this garbage that is so consistently infuriating is and this is not a a, you know it's the places where it diverts from the source material it diverts in just bizarre off the course ways so it's very faithful to the source material and then when it goes off course it goes into a left field that just doesn't make any sense at all yeah it does nothing to help we'll talk about it more in a minute let's take a little bit of time though to uh talk about the cast sure we've got kyle mclaughlin or yeah mclaughlin as paul atreides yeah what do you think? Uh, how how the how old was this? Twenty five. Uh, oh no, yeah, f- no. In fact, I thought I w- I wondered how far apart he was from the actress who played Lady Jessica because instead of mother and son, they looked like you know two lovers who were like escaping into the mountains together. Hmm. I didn't. Oh, I thought he was bad. I thought he was wooden. I didn't think he was charismatic. He was like uh you know all the criticisms you lob at Hayden Christensen, except he literally less interesting things happening with him yeah i would agree i i think I, kyle mclaughlin is an actor who i've liked in other things but in this he's very stiff he's he, a, he, he lacks charisma yeah he just does not seem like someone that people would follow on 
an interstellar crusade. It, it's like it's like if you took if you had Mark Hamill's performance from Star Wars: uh, A New Hope, and everything around him wasn't just good and good and distracting you from how wooden it was, uh, except worse. Except oh, I, no, up. I disagree. I think Mark Hamill does a very good job in New Hope. Um, well, he's fine. He certainly does better than is done in this movie. I think I think that if you put a better movie around. Uh, Kyle McLaughlin, you would it wouldn't be as noticeable, but it is it is it is not. He doesn't do anything that is in service of this movie. Like Sam Worthington in Avatar is kind of boring and middle of the road, and it's fine because of the eye popping visuals all around him constantly, and the fact that half of it is just his voice. Unfortunately, you stare at Kyle McLaughlin for two hours of screen time, and he doesn't bring anything charismatic yeah, to what is a, to distract you uh, to from what the performance. is and to what is an uncharismatic universe yeah kenneth mcmillan oh amazing as baron harcone five stars he was all right i yeah. wrote down his name because i thought if if there's one person who really delivered this the, the, it is this this actor and i wondered i was trying to place him in I, I don't know if there's anything else i can drop him in no i don't have anything else for him really i thought it was a top-notch, uh, top-notch performance. Yeah, I mean, it's a little over the top, but uh, I always imagine the Baron as being a little bit more shrewd and calculating, uh, whereas this performance is all, like, cackling and hysteria, but, you know, that was the choice he made, and he committed to it, and, you know, it, it works, especially within the context of this film that he's in. It's the same character uh, features that Jack Nicholson channeled as the Joker that people love. Just, you know, loud, blind hatred and excitement at evil doing. Yeah, his sadism certainly comes across. Oh, yeah, and that's some sick shit. Now we get into some of... The casting of this movie is actually pretty interesting and worth talking about. A yeah, there were some fun surprises there. Coming up next, Patrick Stewart Sir as Gurney Halleck. Sir Patrick Stewart. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it's a role he regrets having selected. I gotta say that. Yeah, and you know, the movie wastes him. No, he's he's really wasted. Um, and so I knew, someone had told me that Sting had was in this movie. And I was convinced that Sting would play Gurney Halleck because Gurney Halleck is a musician and he's a renowned uh, Bisset player. Um, but when they revealed it was Patrick Stewart, I, I kind of yelled. I was very excited. Yep. They show him holding the Bisset. And then it's never brought back in any scene of the movie in any capacity whatsoever. And they don't say what it is. And he just doesn't have it for the rest of the movie. In fact, in the scene, don't they go like, oh, are we doing music today? And he's like, nope. And he puts it down and you never see it again. No. And, and, and that just seems like a wasted opportunity. And I didn't understand why you would have Sting in your movie if, if he wasn't going to play any music. Uh, but yes, Patrick Stewart wasted. And he has t to suffer through this poor scene where he shield fights with Paul yeah. And the shields are like they look terrible. They're 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 like drawn on animated. I it looks awful. And again, not to harp too much on the special effects, but it is bad to the point where it takes you out of the film. You ha I had to wonder how people sat down and looked at it in the editing room and thought, "Oh, this is good. The effect should have been cut. They should have cut it from the movie and just not had shields at all because Shield it looks that bad." It it was uh, I mean there's nothing that you don't actually need to see a visual of the shields. We've learned this like from other movies. The shields are invisible. Yeah, they're just there and you should show some sparks. They decided to do full and they were like 
turn them they sort of turn them into gumby esque Yeah, it was this characters. primitive polygon style yeah. look. Yeah. It it looked god awful. I think that was the first moment when I was watching it as a kid where the back of my mind started to like have some red flags where it's like, oh, this is this isn't right. Yeah, and again, it's not to say that movies from the eighties were not capable of good looking special effects like this. That's why it's so it's so mind boggling that I don't know what the change was. Everyone on drugs while they were making this. It must have been cocaine because it, it was the 80s. Hmm. So then we have uh, Brad Dourif as Piter DeVries. Now, what the hell else is Brad Dourif from? Because I spent the entire uh, movie trying to place him. Well, he was Wormtongue in The Lord of the Rings. Okay. He also had a memorable guest spot on an episode of The X-Files. And the first season, I think, as, right. a, as a serial killer. And he is probably best known as being the voice of Chucky from the Child's Play movies. Oh, wow. That's pretty funny. Yeah. And not that it's that relevant, but uh, his daughter, who's also been in a few Child's Play movies at this point, she plays a character on the uh, TV show Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. No, Do you right. watch that? Yes. She's Bart. Oh, great. Yeah, and just, I know it's a tangent, but just briefly, once you know they're related, you can't stop seeing the similarities. All right, all right. Well, I mean, he seemed, yeah, I recognize him, but Wormtongue, that's, that's... Uh... Well, I bring up Wormtongue, A, because it's a very prominent role of his, but B, because that's a similar role he does later in a much better film, and you just get so much more out of it, because, like, I feel like as a performance, he's doing pretty well in this too, but it's all muffled by the fact that it's in this trash. Yeah, it's tough because he does bring the right energy to his character and to his scenes. And it is one of the few times you get to see an actor who's... I mean, so much is going wrong in this movie. The few times where something works, I was happy. Yeah, you latch on to it. Because so little. So there's so... It, you are literally in a desert of badness. Yeah. And you're clinging to every rock that you can. Yeah. So Max von Sydow shows up. As uh, Dr. Kynes. Yes, who I thought for a second was um, Elder Lannister from... Oh, uh, Charles Dance. Yeah. Yeah. They they have a similar look, except uh, Max von Sydow looks like him then as he looks now. Yes. You know? And, uh, you know, funny that it's another Game of Thrones, Max von Sydow, the Three-Eyed Raven. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Connection. Anyway, he's fine in this. I think he does okay. Yeah. So we get Sean Phillips... As Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Moyam. Forgettable, fine. That was the part. I just wanted to bring her up because I recognize her from a television miniseries that I am hugely a fan of. She plays Livia on I, Claudius. Okay. Have you ever seen that? No, sir. I, Claudius is arguably the best piece of television I have ever seen in my entire life. Wow, that's a bold statement. Yeah, and so she went from uh, first to worst, from that to this. Also, an alumni of I, Claudius is Patrick Stewart. Reuniting in this dreck, those poor, poor two. Anyway, uh, Sean Young as Chani. Yeah. What'd you think? Fine. They don't give her a lot to do, do they? No. And in fact... We talked about the uh, over-reliance on voiceover and exposition in this movie. Uh, Chani is Paul's lover, and, you know, his love interest throughout the film, even before they meet, because he's having dreams about her, and their relationship 
is tossed off in a single line of voiceover. The movie's happening, we're watching action, and then there's just a line in voiceover. Paul and Chani's love grew. Yeah, and then it, it's a sh- close-up of them making out superimposed over, like, ba- people training for battle. It's awesome. Awesome. <sighs> I really get a sense of their relationship. You know, I really care and feel invested in this, like, epic love that is growing between the two of them because you told me that their love grew. I, uh, I, yeah, I don't, again, I don't understand what the message or point of this. Well, we'll talk more. Let's get a couple more actors out of the way just because I think they bear mentioning. Dean Stockwell as Dr. Yui. Yes, he's excellent. Now you know where you recognize him from. Yes, Battlestar. Brother Cavill. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, he, he, that, that was good casting. I had no problems with it. Cool. Francesca Annis plays Lady Jessica. I liked her. I actually, I actually thought um, if she'd been cast with a better Paul that it, I agree. Finally. And there, there's like a many more actors, but we just got to cut it off somewhere. Sting as Fade Rautha. Yeah. Uh, he physically looked like I guess what I would have thought Fader Rafa sh- should look like. Um, you mean uh, in that scene where he steps out of his like sauna and he's in that metal bikini, yeah, just hanging out while his uncle is ogling him, hungrily ogling him. Yeah, I just I kept thinking to myself that this is the male counterpoint to the Princess Leia in the slave bikini scene. Uh, it's just pure gratuitous beefcake. Yeah, and Sting looks Oh, he looks great. He is ripped. He looks fucking awesome. He definitely uh you just understand the hours and hours of tantric sex when you look at that body. And also, like, with a bod like that, he could he should have kicked the shit out of Paul. Oh, absolutely. He should have just like pointed an ab at him and cut him down where he stood. You know that they were probably like they probably cast Kyle McLaughlin and were like, um, he's not in awesome shape. The week before filming, it was like, uh, can we just keep his body covered up? We'll just this? put we'll just put him in the still suits. They'll just never he'll always or be you in know the still what? suits. We'll create an effect whereby the shield around him renders everyone as these amorphous blocks <laughs> and then you can't see their bodies so it won't matter what it looks like when they're fighting also the hand-to-hand combat scenes in this movie look like garbage uh but uh, again sting looked so fucking good when paul tried to stab him his knife should have just shattered against those abs yeah they I... looked like they could cut diamond all right well it's time to talk about the plot oh Jesus Christ. Okay, well, first we're treated to a three-minute monologue by... Virginia Madsen. Virginia Madsen. As Princess Irulan. Oh, and uh, not that we're getting into her performance, but I did notice this. She said that when she was brought on board, the pro- the producers told her that we're making Star Wars for grown-ups. Uh, Star Wars is for grown-ups, you fucking chode. Yeah, well, anyway. Um, yeah, so this movie opens, as all great films do with about eight minutes of voiceover exposition, just explaining everything that you need to know in order to get what's going to happen. Yeah, you got to wonder if between the first Star Wars trilogy and the second one, George Lucas saw this movie and was like, huh, a movie focused on trade. (laughs) Yeah, there might be something there. I mean, it didn't work on Dune, but I'm George Lucas. I did a much better job, yeah. 
Probably. I, I mean, it's one of those things where you're you're like, this is what the budget went to, the giant weird guild puppet thing. Yeah, which again, so when it starts, you start seeing like the design of the sets and of the creatures like this uh, guild pilot, which looks awful. So, um, yeah, no, we're, I don't mean to go. So you have the so we get the eight minute monologue. Yeah, we and- get that. Then we get a scene with the emperor talking to the guild about spice because it's not obvious to us how important spice is yet. Right. The emperor establishes that the heart that he's giving. Uh, well, he doesn't just establish. We've just had eight minutes of voiceover exposition, and then we get emperor exposition yes. in his conversation with the pilot. It's all just expository dialogue. He explains that, oh, they're going to get a ruckus, but it's just going to be a trap for the Harkonnens to come back in. Yeah, I mean, that that's literally the dialogue. It's like, you have to understand, pilot, that I'm... The, the Atreides and the Harkonnens have been feuding for generations, and while I'm not taking sides officially, secretly I'm working with the Harkonnens, so I developed a plan to give the planet Arrakis to the Atreides to mine the very important spice melange, but secretly the Harkonnens will use my Sardaukar soldiers to- it's just like endless exposition. Yeah, and all it would take for this- all it would take to get that out a different way would be the scene- the establishing scene is Arrakis- You've got the Duke getting off of a plane, and it's like, Hello, Duke, I'm from Arrakis. You're here because the Emperor sent you. Ah, yes, no more Harkonnens on this planet anymore. Oh, the Harkonnens, I mean... We hate those guys. We hate those guys, but I guess they could always come back. (laughs) Not under my watch. And then, like, a quick shot of the Weasley traitor, Dr. Yui, when he says that. Yeah. All visual, baby. There's... there. (sighs) Yes, and it's definitely... Uh, again this is why you can't let david lynch off the hook he wrote it he had he had i said this about james cameron they could have been a screenwriter there there could have been additional writers there could have been producers there could have been anyone to explain to him that what he was putting together was boring they needed to get a script doctor in on this real bad another change that they made which is stupid is that so in the books the bane Gesserit sisterhood has a martial art called the weirding way but in the movie, the weirding way exists, but they also have something called weirding modules, which is this uh, sonic weapon the Atreides have developed. And I- I'm sorry, I'm going to go on a brief tangent here, and I apologize, but I think it's important to explaining part of why this movie is so much worse than the book. In the book, the Fremen are heavily based on early Muslim society. You have this desert people with a strong uh, religious uh, motivation who explode out of the desert in this rapid conquest that they call a jihad, even. And in the book, the explanation for their success is the fact that they've grown up as a people in these harsh conditions, like the desert of Arrakis, and that has made them a hardy, disciplined people, and they have this strong religious motivation, and that carries them through all the hardship of war and gives them an edge over the lax, lazy, you know, debauched court that has been ruling the galaxy up until this point. Much like, you know, the early Islamic conquests against the Byzantines and the Persians, who were kind of these old, decaying societies, right? Yeah. All of that is lost in the movie because the secret to their success isn't the discipline of their culture or the harshness of their world, but it's the fact that they just have developed this weapon. They have this weapon that they can use that gives them an edge, and so that's why they win. And it just, it 
totally cuts out all of the deeper significance of what it means to be part of Fremen culture. And that's why the movie, I guess, justifies not exploring Fremen culture at all. Because there's no significance to it anymore. But it's in not, the books, it, they explore it a ton because their culture is the key to their success. It's not just a weapon either. It's that it's that Paul tells them if they say certain words, the weapon will shoot stronger, which it makes absolutely no fucking sense. Yeah, they don't explain why that is no. at all. Anyway, so that's just a brief problem I had that I think really exemplifies what they did wrong in adapting this from the movie to the book. And so now that's that's done. We can get back to the plot of this movie. So... We start introducing everybody, and again, the thing they do wrong is that everyone's dialogue is just nothing but exposition. Uh, some of it, some of it is is like almost verbatim from the book. In, in the book, there's a series of meetings between Paul and the three higher ups in his father's court. I I, I don't want to just talk about compare the two things, but. Through the first 40 minutes of the movie, almost every other word is a plot point or something about the plot. And it's all stuff that they are. It's repetitive. It's the same information over and over again. And it's dry. And you understand that the, it's a desert planet there. You understand there is it hasn't been a drop of water in a long time. Right. And when I say dry, too, I mean, not only is the information dry, but it's presented in a dry way. Like, there's no action happening on the screen. It's just people standing around talking. There is a section where Paul just is reading a futuristic encyclopedia, and all of the graphics that he that he goes through, it's like watching an Atari video game level. It's of... watching someone else read a book. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just, it's nonsense. So, the Atreides wind up on Arrakis, and ultimately they are betrayed by Dr. Yui, who shouldn't be capable of betrayal, but the Harkonnens kidnapped his wife, so they were able to get that in on him, all of which is explained mere moments before the action happens. When we say there's a lot of exposition, we mean that this movie is explaining who is who, what is what, and what's going on in voiceover or in, like, thought voiceover as it is happening. Pretty pretty much, uh, the second before Yui betrays them, Lady Jessica says, oh, you hate the Harkonnens, don't you? And he's like, yes, well, you know, I have a very personal reason why. They killed your wife, didn't they? I'd rather not talk about it. Cut to, Yui has betrayed them, and he's taken the shields down, and he's explaining to the Duke, <laughs> I had to do this because they killed my wife. Yeah. I just, uh, ay, ay, ay. So, so there's this attack on the Atreides compound. Yui disarms their shields, which allows the Harkonnens to basically firebomb them. Right. He also destroys their weirding modules so they don't have their super uh, weapons. Whatever. And it, this is our first big action set piece. And uh, it is, you know, clearly something they spent a lot of money on. But the fighting, you know, the. This is a science fiction tentpole movie, so you would think that the action is at least a little bit important. But the action in this film, there's two big action scenes. There's the attack on the Atreides compound that we're up to, and there's the final battle later. <sighs> These big action scenes, it's all muddled. It's boring to look at. It's all done. It's all very dark. Like, it's done at night, and everything looks dark and muddy. You know, you compare it to, say, again, Star Wars... We're like, think of Return of the Jedi, where that final battle on the planet, broad daylight. Well, the... You can see everything that's happening. You know who's where. In this, 
it's all hard, hard to follow. And this might sound like a small thing, but every everyone is shot way too close up. The the scale of the frame is very small, so you get no sense of the scale of the combat. The and sh- that's a problem throughout the movie. The Sorry shots, to keep the shots are extremely wide or extremely close and nothing in between. Right. So again, the sense of scale, the scope of this battle is never clear to you. It's always just very close up to people brawling or very far out with like a lot of extras just running from one place to another. You never get that kind of mid-level shot where you actually see a bit of like group clashes and it makes all the difference i also felt like the fights this one was rushed it didn't felt like they took the time to live in them and which is which is insane because earlier we at we were asked to watch for five minutes while piter while mentat piter arrives like in a vessel to talk to the baron harkonnen do you know what i'm saying like yeah we, we have wasted five minutes watching a ship travel across the screen and then we get to the battle it all has to happen in one minute because there's no time because they they just haven't they don't have the time and given the length it. of this movie they didn't seem to have a problem with taking their time I, oh it, it's it's just an unbelievable slog yeah and now because this is the downfall of the atreides a lot of people that supposedly were attached to are dying and we should feel something but we don't because we've just met them well here's the thing we haven't just met them we have spent nearly 90 minutes with them at that point this happens over an hour into the movie that their downfall happens and yet we feel nothing because even though we've spent time with them we still know absolutely nothing about them because every line out of their mouth is exposition we never have any scenes where we get to know them as characters or as people we have only heard them talk about other factual things that we need to know to get to the next thing. We have no sense of them as people, so we don't care about it when they die. I don't even know if we've mentioned, so listeners, we're introduced to Duke Leto, who is the... Duke Leto. Duke Leto, who is the head of the Atreides family. He's married, uh, he's not married, but he has a concubine lady, Jessica, who is Paul's mother. Paul is his son and heir to the throne. I don't think the Duke and Lady Jessica share more than one minute of screen time together. Yeah. And yet we're supposed to care about him being her husband and her being his wife in this brave heart kind of way where he except it's reverse. He dies. Uh, he's captured and killed by the Baron. And did you care at all when Leto died? Didn't give a shit. Didn't give one shit. Except I was like, oh, yeah, you know, the poison gas thing didn't really work out. Yui, way to fucking go, man. Yeah. Which which is explained to everyone is that the doctor betrays them. But he gives Leto the opportunity to strike back at the Baron with this poison capsule that looks like a tooth, and he can breathe poison gas in his face. The Duke fires it off without the Baron in close enough range, and so the Baron's right-hand man dies, and the Duke dies, but the Baron escapes. So the Baron gets out of this battle thinking he's gotten everything he wants, and I haven't explained what happens to Lady Jessica and Paul. but They escape. Basically, he captures uh, Paul and Lady Jessica and even though they're supposed to be dumped into the desert, they use their Bene Gesserit powers to take over the helicopter they're in and escape. Yeah. Or ornithopter. Whatever. And so this is where we meet the Fremen for the first time, like two hours into the movie. We're finally introduced to the Fremen who... Well, we did meet... We did get... Uh, we met Kynes. We met Kynes. Yeah, but only briefly. And and But anyway, so now we're at... The point in the movie where we're supposed to start exploring Fremen culture, and we never do. No, it, we barely see any of it. And and this is this like it moves so fast. They basically meet Paul and Jessica immediately, accept them into the clan, and then all of a sudden Paul is running the clan. Yeah, it, that hap- it happens in the space of like 
eight minutes. And then we get another 15 minute scene of the Baron being over the top and gross and evil. Right. You know, uh, there was one thing, though, that we both noticed and found worth mentioning, which is so on the planet Dune, there are these monster creatures called worms. I remember them as being sandworms, but they're called worms. But they are giant worm-like creatures that live under the sand, and they, if they come across you or whatever building or vehicle you're in, they will fuck you up and eat you. They come up from the bottom. They're like a moving sarlacc. You were correct in your prediction that there's a sarlacc-like sure, creature. Sure, sure. Um, and so the way they track people moving across the desert is that they're attracted to rhythm. So like the, you know, the thump, thump, thump on the desert surface, they feel that. In order to avoid being eaten by a sandworm, you're supposed to walk arrhythmically. Yeah. You know, so they have these devices called thumpers, which will make a thumping rhythm on the sand to distract them and draw them to some other location. And then you are supposed to walk where you need to go without any sort of rhythm in your stride. And I just keep thinking, how do you do that? Like, that must be so hard. It seems very challenging to walk without having a beat or rhythm behind it. It's like shuffle, step, 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 shuffle. Yeah, you can do it for a second, but I feel like as you keep moving, just the ability to maintain, like, just a human being naturally starts to fall into patterns over time. It it would require so much self-discipline. It's kind of like parkour. How so? Like parkour, you're just like, you're just like randomly grooving along, climbing on things or trying to jump over things or leaping near things. But in the case of parkour, that's imposed on you by the environment. You're right. not choosing to walk in a weird way. You're being forced to jump around. Well, you're also breaking up the rhythm of a normal walk, though, by taking this path that requires you to like roll over things and climb yeah. things. But to just choose to walk weird must be very difficult i think we should try it this tonight i think after this podcast we should see if we can go the rest of the night walking arrhythmically sure so despite the fact that we spend no time establishing the fremen culture we get the sand riding scene which we're just told is important to them yes Uh, we find out that they can ride the worms and also i just want to say about the worms you just spent a lot of time talking about you know their importance and and the importance of movement the worms are as if like they took cameras and pan them over to, to like paintings they're the, even there's nothing exciting about seeing the dust that they kick up under the sand how are there no beautiful desert sandscapes everything about no this, there are no epic shots of the desert all they, they should, try this movie should be like lawrence of arabia with yes. these gorgeous sand shots but there are none of those and i know i keep coming back to jaws but like the the catching evidence of the motion of the sandworms should be like seeing a dorsal fin. Yeah. You know, it's te- it should be terrifying. But instead, it's nothing. The worms, instead of being fast and moving through the sand skillfully, because of, uh, despite their massive size, are often portrayed very slowly. Very clumsy. Very clumsily coming above the surface with mandibles to crush or grab things. And then very slowly retracting. And you have no sense of their scale except for like a couple of times when people are standing on top of them or if they're coming beneath the surface. But those shots only last for a moment. And these creatures should be scary because they're fast and they're huge. Yes. And the one time you do see the humans riding them, it is some of the saddest green screen. Yeah. 
And again, you don't really get a sense of their scale because you just see like they're standing on something and you know it's big. You see that they're standing on something they're holding ropes. Right. This is theoretically something that's very important to their culture and theoretically hard to do. And this should be a big moment because this is the moment where Paul truly becomes one of them. Right. It's very similar to a scene in Avatar, which is when Jake is able to ride the uh, winged creature on Pandora. Sure. In Pandora, they explain what they're going to do, they explain how it works, and then he goes and does it. In this movie, they come to a place, they say, now you're going to try and do this. They don't explain the significance of it, and they don't explain how it's done. So Paul runs and eventually rides the sandworm, but you never understand if he's doing a good job, because we've never seen anyone do it before, and we've never had anyone explain how you accomplish this. In, yeah. in Avatar, it's all very simple. It's like, Jake, you do this by doing that. And, like, y- you know, throughout the scene, we can tell if he's doing a good job. You know, it's simple. It's like you hook this up and then you either fly or you fall. In this, it's like, it's incredibly complicated. There's all this apparatus he's deploying and, like, doing stuff with his body. And you never you never know, like, what the hell is going on until they're like, he did it! Well, yeah, and, and in the book, that's all you get all that explanation right. the, the idea is you've got hooks that you have to use to f- open a mandible basically on the worm and as long as its f- skin is revealed it won't dive back down into the sand because of how painful it will be for this piece of it that's supposed to be shielded to touch the sand so what you do is you use the hook to expose that and with your hook in it you'll be safe because it won't dive back under and that allows you to get on top of it and if you're skilled enough you can actually manipulate its direction with the hooks and the reason why riding the worms is so important is it allows them to travel far distances in the desert which is otherwise unsafe you get none of that right and by the way that is hugely significant to their military capabilities yeah except except david lynch was like well i guess we got a lot of worms in this movie i guess we got to show that they do something because the whole point of the worms is they're part of the spice harvesting process in the film dune he, they're just ridden into the last scene. They're like part of this this battle that happens, uh, but that's completely superfluous. And anyway, so they never uh, explain, so they never explain any of that about the di- the the mechanics of riding a sandworm. So we just watch him do it, and there's no tension because we don't understand what's happening. No, and but then finally he accomplishes it. So now we move on to our final act when the Fremen finally launch their assault. I guess a little bit before then. Paul drinks the water of life and becomes like a uh, Superman in his ability to see the future and do things. Yeah. And, you know, there's like a brief dream sequence. There's that... many dream sequences. Yes, that's true. Okay, fine. I will say that there was one cool idea in this dream sequence that I wish they'd executed better. And the idea is that as Paul is drinking the water of life, which is supposed to make him the Quisas Hatterach, the Messiah of the universe... Everyone who has any kind of connection to this uh, more than human ability has a nosebleed and a fainting spell. So like his sister Alia swoons and has a nosebleed. The head of the Bene Gesserit, Helen Moeum, has the same thing. The galactic pilot freaks out. All across the galaxy, people are rocked by him going through this. And it doesn't come through in this movie very well, but... What's good about that is that it's really at least attempting to get across the significance of what's happening because people across the universe are 
feeling this momentous thing happen. Yeah. It's similar to in Star Wars when Alderaan is destroyed, Ben feels it. And in Revenge of the Sith, uh, when the Jedi are destroyed, you see Yoda have a have a swoon because he feels the deaths across the galaxy going down. Uh, Lady Jessica drinks the water of life while she's pregnant with Paul's younger sister, Alia. And what this does is it allows the Reverend Mother who has belonged uh, there, the psychic who has been attached to the Fremen all these years, essentially downloads her entire knowledge and life history into uh, Lady Jessica, but also her daughter. In the movie, this happens again with very little explanation, except we do get a voiceover that says... Lady Jessica's daughter was born early because of this. And then they we get like a three minute close up of what is supposed to be her in the womb. Yeah, it's a fetus. And like much in this movie, it looks disgusting. And that I mean, again, it's like, okay, cool. Like, I, you're not really you're telling us things that are happening that are not important. And you're not telling us about things that are happening that are important to understand what the fuck is going on on screen. I mean, I don't know what David Lynch was thinking. Yeah, Ali was not done particularly well in this, which is a shame because she is actually my favorite character from the book. But uh, I enjoyed whatever. I enjoyed some of the fact that it was overdubbed. I thought some of it there at the, the end was all right. I mean, again, it's just one of those things where I couldn't really tell if I was enjoying things because, you know, it'd be an it'd be a sea of unwatchable stuff. And then one thing that triggered like, oh, that's OK. Or they did that. All right. Mm. Well, anyway, so we get to this ending. We get uh, to this incomprehensible battle sequence that is basically all and muddled all and the heart, dark all and the heart, ugly. Yeah, because there's only 15 minutes left in the movie and they have to wrap up, like, everything. Um, you have the Harkonnens and the Emperor have landed on Arrakis and they fall right into Paul's trap and he and a sandworm army and an actual storm overwhelm them and basically... Uh, win. Win, yeah. And he has... a. Uh, brief hand-to-hand combat with fade rautha and he defeats sting just not (laughs) he defeats sting (laughs) not to harp on it but um another spot where they could have invested a little bit more effort would have been in the fight choreography because the hand-to-hand combat looks terrible yeah it it looks like did you ever watch star trek as a kid yeah it looks like a fight scene from an episode of star trek the next generation and all of this is to say that you do again i i mean i feel like it gives you an, another it's just another opportunity to appreciate movies where large epic battle scenes are done right or done well yeah lord of the rings you I, know where you actually not just have a sense of scale but have a sense of like you know who is where uh how are the things happening in one place impacting the things that are having another place you know, uh, how is the battle unfolding on a grand scale? Like, And what's at stake? Yeah, and, you know, do I care about the characters if they are injured or die? Like, none of that is at play here. I would even say this This movie is so bad, you even makes you wish for something of in the Michael Bay school of action where it's just an excessive amount of things happening. Well, at least that's slightly visually stimulating. Yeah, it's, it's something you, can, you can't you can necessarily follow it emotionally, but visually it's cool. Sure, turn your brain off and just let the pretty colors flicker in front of no, your eyes. No, these are like very slow or still shots of giant worms with with basically fireworks happening around yeah, them. Yeah, you can't see anything that's happening. Um. You can't really tell which side is supposed to be which. Uh, which the Harkonnens kind of look distinctive because they're in like one spacesuit color, but 
You don't know who's winning. You don't, you don't know, know who's who. <laughs> you don't know why. And, you know, just again, it, and it's all done in these ugly blacks and browns and grays. And it, it does culminate in this in this hand-to-hand combat between Sting and Kyle McLaughlin. And Kyle McLaughlin wins, shockingly. Um, uh, uh, and then at, finally at the end, he is in voiceover described as Space Jesus, and he brings the rain. Yeah, it finally rains on the planet where it couldn't. Ugh. And that's the end. All right. So I can't I can't I can't believe I can't believe it. This I I oh, I felt so angry when this movie completed. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about how this movie did a little bit. The movie cost an estimated 40 million dollars to make. Oh, wow, that's a lot of money in 1984 early 80s i think it came out in 83 uh, it came out in 84 so they're making a little bit before that it made a little over six million dollars in its opening weekend it was number two at the box office behind beverly hills cop wow not something you want to open against not that they knew that at the time yeah it wound up making uh 30.9 million dollars total oof and it was considered a box office flop yeah not a big surprise. I'm shocked that it did that well, to be honest. I, I really? can't believe what was, I wonder what the strength of that was. I mean, was was it because of the book? Yeah, probably. And was Kyle McLaughlin like a known quantity at the time? No, not really. So this is like a movie cast with no significant name actors. Uh, not for the time, no. I mean, I guess Sting was in it. Okay, so, yeah. So for reviews, uh, it currently has a 55% on Rotten Tomatoes. Amongst critics, anyway, it's got a 66% audience score. Ugh. Who the fuck are the ones who liked it? There's this, because this is so audaciously bad, there's got to be a sect of people who fanatically love it. Yeah, but I want to make it 100% clear right now. This is not a so bad it's good movie. This movie is terrible on every conceivable level, including the level that is, it's so bad, it makes, it like tickles me and makes me laugh. No, 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 no. This movie sucks. If you ever come across a person in your life and they think that Dune is worth watching and they think they you should watch it with them because they can convince you why it's good. Cut them out of your life. Get out of that relationship. Get by, out of that room. By any means necessary. Get away from that person. Run. Don't even talk to them anymore. You don't want their voice infecting your mind. Block them on Facebook. Block them on Twitter. Call the police. <laughs> Call Sting. <laughs> I mean, oh my God, maybe Sting will come help you. Call Sting. He must know how bad this Call movie Sting. was. He was in it. Uh, and 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 for what it's worth, by the way, everybody, this movie, for all the faults that we've been laying on the table so far, there's one we left out. Incredibly boring. Uh, I don't know if we left that out. Oh, we've, okay. We've I just, certainly I, said it's boring. I just boring. want to make sure it's clear. Very boring. So, I mean, Roger Ebert yeah. gave this movie one star out of four. Okay. He said... This movie is a real mess, an incomprehensible, ugly, unstructured, pointless excursion into the murkier realms of one of the most confusing screenplays of all time. Uh, Thank you, Roger, because I I guess I never did say it better myself. You really boiled down my problems into one sentence. I See, the only thing is I don't know if the screenplay is that confusing. I think it is. Um, because... They spend half of the screenplay doing voiceover to try and explain what's happening. Yeah, and they don't have to. I guess you're right. It is confoundingly overwrought. He goes on. 
The movie's plot will no doubt mean more to people who've read Herbert than to those who are walking in cold. That's something we should probably be thinking about, is the fact that we were less confused because we've read the book and know what's happening. I guess we missed an opportunity by not having you see it cold, because then we could have seen how confused you were coming out of it. Yeah, but that would not have made for... That would have... That would have... I would have... I So there was a part of me where about two-thirds of the way through, I thought, well, we have to finish it because we're going to record the podcast. And then I thought, does that make me a lunatic? Does that make me a sane uh, human being, that thought? Because this is so bad, I would be well within my right to request we stop watching it right then and there. I wouldn't have blamed you. And I got the impression that you wanted to because you tried to sneak out and you used the bathroom and you were like, you can let it keep rolling. And I, I said no, and I paused it. And damn you for that. Because I wanted you to, because I was, this was such a miserable view, I couldn't let you not experience it with me. <laughs> you fucking bastard. And I will say that if there, if there was not the, the professional conceit of this recording happening around it, I don't know if I, if this is one time I'm considering asking Amazon for my money back because we had to pay to stream it based on how bad the content is and i'm not crazy enough that i'm going to actually do that because they'll just say hey you bought dune you should have known better you know what you're getting into but i will i will say there's an argument to be made and i feel like i bet that like several hundred times a month amazon managers it's like sir yeah uh, I got a customer that uh, needs to speak to you. <sighs> Is it Dune? <laughs> That's a funny conceit. However, I do not believe for one second that hundreds of times a month someone's clicking on Dune. Tens of times a year. Yeah, maybe. Siskel also weighed in on this movie. It's physically ugly. It contains at least a dozen gory gross-out scenes. Some of its special effects are cheap surprisingly cheap because this film cost a reported 40 to 45 million dollars and its story is confusing beyond belief in case i haven't made myself clear i hated watching this film thank you gene nailed it both of them together named the film the worst film of 1984 and the biggest disappointment of the year in their stinkers of 1984 episode yeah it's it's i mean i don't understand how ebert has had harsh words like on the movie north he hated 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 this movie yep dune is a million times worse than north i don't know david lynch if you're out there if you're listening to this podcast what were you thinking some people had positive things to say about the movie harlan ellison the sci-fi writer said some positive stuff about it but i'm not even gonna dignify it by reading it here oh please give me give me something i didn't even write it down (laughs) yodorowsky wound up seeing the movie he had been disappointed by the failure of his own attempt to make dune and didn't want to go see it and he said that he was uh, jealous when he learned that david lynch was getting a chance to make it because partially because he thought david lynch was one of the only other directors capable of doing the movie justice so he refused to see it for a while, but finally his son dragged him to it. And Yudorowsky says he became very happy seeing that it was a failure. Yeah. So speaking of other directors, by the way, we earlier talked about the idea of giving this movie to a capable 
but uninspiring director like J.J. Abrams versus giving it to an auteur like David Lynch. What do you think now that you've seen it? I, 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 will, I will say this. A couple of directors came to mind that I would absolutely cringe if I found out they were getting anywhere near the material. And those are Zack Snyder and Joel Schumacher. <laughs> and a few came to mind that I didn't think of earlier that would be perfect for this material. James Gunn. Hmm. Guillermo del Toro. Totally. And Peter Jackson. Yeah. Okay. And I would like to say a very significant fuck you to James Cameron because James Cameron could have made this movie instead of Avatar and he could have probably handled it very well he would have had all of the visual effects he would have been able to create an interesting Arrakis he would have had great creature work I'm almost doubly incensed about the lameness of the plot and script to Avatar knowing that Dune was sitting there. Well, it wasn't sitting there because it, it had been done. 30, 20, at the time he made Avatar, it was 20 years earlier. So you're saying it was ripe for a reboot. Exactly. It's ripe for a reboot now. Well, Josh, part of the reason why I wanted to do this episode was because I remembered how bad it was and because it's a notorious flop and I um, thought it would be interesting to do. Oh, no, this is, this is like... Another reason no, why I wanted to no, do it... No, no, Is because no, it is being remade. no, no. No, fuck you, no, no. It is going to be directed, uh, it's still being developed, but at the moment, the director attached to this project is not James Cameron. No, don't fucking say it. Who are you afraid of? Don't say it. They gave it back to David Lynch. Wait, what? They're letting him do it again. Are you kidding me? I am kidding. Denis Villeneuve, the guy who directed Sicario and Arrival and Blade Runner 2049 oh, is going to be directing I thought it. you were going to say J.J. Abrams. Oh, no. <laughs> that would be funny. <laughs> I, I really thought you were... I, the reason I was so upset because I was anticipating J.J. Abrams. Oh, that would have been a nice climax to this, wouldn't how, it? How is there a sci-fi property that exists that J.J. Abrams doesn't get to direct? I know, honestly. But uh, I think Denis Villeneuve is a really good choice. I'm looking forward to seeing what he does with this project. Oh, I'm sorry. Another directing team that I would be terrified with this material, but would be interested in, the Wachowski brothers. Sisters. Sisters. The Wachowski sisters. Actually, given uh, that little slip that we just had, that does bring up one other thing that I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about. We talked about it in the book, but we should talk about it in the context of the movie as well, which is the homophobia uh, in this film. I don't know. I don't want to get into that scene was pretty disturbing to watch. It's in disturbing general. and it was tough to watch, but I, I think it bears mentioning, so I'll just do a brief thing on okay. it. Okay. The film scholar Robin Wood called Dune the most obscenely homophobic film he had ever seen, referring to a scene in which the Baron Harkonnen rapes a young man and also bleeds him to death with a disgusting object called a heart plug which is not from the book. It was designed specially for the movie. Uh, it is this. It is what it sounds like. They put a plug in your sternum over your heart so that if they were to pull it out, you would just immediately start bleeding straight from your heart and bleed out very quickly. And that you know allows them a certain sense of dominance over their slaves. In the book, there is 
some subtle homophobia. It is not outright, but it is suggested that the villain of the piece, Baron Harkonnen, is homosexual and does quote-unquote sexually depraved things with his male slaves. In the movie, it is not subtle at all. It is right there in front of you, and it is portrayed in an incredibly distasteful way. It's really gratuitous and unnecessary. Yeah. The writer, uh, Dennis Altman, also added this, that the film shows how AIDS references begin penetrating the popular culture around this time. Was it just an accident that the film Dune has the homosexual villain with separating sores on his face? Oh, wow. Now, the vil- the, the Baron get- is diseased in the book as well, but it didn't have to be portrayed the way it is in the movie. That was a choice they made. I mean, I, I thought the diseases, yeah, I-, I didn't make that connection. I thought it was just disgusting for the sake of disgusting. Possibly. I mean, maybe it was something that they didn't even realize they were doing. They didn't think about it. They had the whole weird, I mean, talk about the things that they did spend time thinking about. He was like, they were removing blood from people to inject into wounds in his face. I don't know. But so much of the film is also disgusting that it is entirely plausible that that was just one more disgusting thing that they threw in without thinking about what was coming across when they did it i mean it does say something about what he what david lynch must have thought about governing authorities in the 80s that oh they're so gross and yet it's uh it's like he doesn't see that the alternative he doesn't portray the alternative to them nearly as beautiful as they should be depicted or as they deserve to be depicted hmm like like the like the fremen people as the as the resistance are not uh they're not depicted at all they're you know they're barely present you get this you get one shot of them in a in a hall which uh, yeah which stands in for their entire society yeah well anyway so on that down note josh do you have any final thoughts about this film well i i kind of been okay we 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 missed one thing yeah <laughs> Uh, we do get Kyle McLaughlin saying, what's in the box? <laughs> he does say, what's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Stay away from here. Stay away from here, Paul. Uh, Harkonnen's got the upper hand. <laughs> uh, so that is something that we didn't really touch on naturally. I'd like to I'd like to call attention to. Um, cool. There is a dog in this movie. Oh, you're we, right. Yeah, we didn't really touch on your predictions, but I think we talked enough about this film that I don't want to go back. No, that's fine. Uh, there is a dog in this movie. There is a really cute pug, and I and I at one point wrote down, this might all be worth it to see Patrick Stewart charging into battle holding a pug under his arm. If only. Anything else specific? All right, so are we, are we doing like final thoughts, or is this just- Yeah, this is final thoughts. Okay, so- I'm uh, without any reservations. This is a never. No one should watch this movie. It, this is a never. I can't think of any reason why I would recommend it. Dave already hit, said this. It's not good, bad. It's bad, bad. It's boring. It's alienating. And I, 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 I will only be. I guess the positive I would see is that it is a signpost. It is a great signpost for how not to make your sci-fi movie. And that's all I can say about it that's positive. It's only positive in the sense that hopefully some film directors see it and understand these are not good choices to make and to stay away from them in the future. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree. Uh, As I think we have both made very clear throughout the course of this discussion, 
It's an awful film. I'd seen it once before, and while I wasn't going to go in with an open mind, I was willing to give it a shot, and I shouldn't have. I have seen David Lynch films that have artistic merit, but this does not have that. It's an eyesore. It is a stain on American culture. It's something that should be buried in the deepest pit and forgotten. And that's our episode for today. So, if you liked what you hear... Wait, wait, do I get a plug? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay, if you like stories about political drama and upheaval and people being assassinated, uh, you should come see Julius Caesar at Theater for a New Audience, uh, which is uh, running for the next few weeks. Right on. I always like hearing a second opinion, and I especially like hearing my own opinion supported by others. So if you'd like to get in touch, email me at betterlatethannevernever.pod at gmail.com, or you can hit me up on Twitter at betterlate underscore pod. And that's all we got for this week. So Josh, it was great having you. Hey, always great to be here. I'd like to say out of the three movies we've had the pleasure of watching or unpleasure of watching in this case, uh, two of them have been uh, all right, but the first one was great, the second one was okay, and the third one was bad, so I don't like the way we're trending. Yeah, but at least this one was memorable. And I guess, uh, yeah, that's all we got. So we'll catch you next time. Catch you later. Bye. The spice must flow. Melange!